Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Harry, what have you pilfered from the larder this time? Well, it's a, it's a big month of celebration here in Britain, isn't it? And uh, and the and the chocolate manufacturers are on board with it. So I've got uh, I've got the um, Cadbury's Dairy Milk Eurovision Bar. Oh, but even more excitingly, I've got the Fry's Coronation Turkish Delight. I was a bit worried that it's going to be like Coronation Chicken that they'd have just put a load of curry powder and sultanas <laughs> in it. But it turns out it's just exactly the same as normal Turkish Delight. So just the same old crap in a different wrapper, Dan. <laughs> much a, I don't know if that's a metaphor for that. Or just the motto of this podcast. <laughs> but anyway, so I've got that done, but it's not it's not very exciting. It's not really very exciting, but you know, I can I can have my Eurovision bar while I'm while I'm watching Eurovision or not watching Eurovision, as the case may be. <laughs> and anything else going on there? Um, well, I've got a, a Pancho Pearson update. Oh, um, yeah. I remember we were talking about Stuart Pancho Pearson. I think last week we were talking about people who, who we shared names with, and that was always. And, and uh, but Stuart Pancho Pearson, the, the Manchester United player, had inherited his Pancho nickname from a previous Manchester United forward, and I thought that it was Stan Pearson who played for Manchester United from the 1930s to 1950s. But in fact, it wasn't. It was Mark Pancho Pearson. Oh. An inside forward who played for Manchester United from 1957 to 1963. I think he made his maybe made his debut just after the Munich air crash, and he was named Pancho apparently because he had long sideburns that gave him a Mexican appearance. And I have to say, I've looked at pictures of him, and he looks about as Mexican as I do. Um, however, what I would say is that the film of Viva Zapata, starring the equally un-Mexican-looking Marlon Brando in the title role. Um, appeared in cinemas, British cinemas, about 1953, so maybe when Mark Pearson was kind of coming through the Manchester United youth ranks. And that does star, as Pancho Villa, the actor Alan Reed, who is most famous for being the voice of Fred Flintstone. Now, so I think that while uh, Mark Pearson doesn't look very much, it doesn't really look Mexican, he does look quite a lot like Fred Flintstone playing a Mexican. So maybe that's how he got his name. Anyway, so that's that. Uh, what else has happened? I was I did a Hexham Book Festival, um, which was a rich, a rich source of it was a rich source of football information for me because uh, a man came to a man came up and he said he was an Exeter fan and he said that once Exeter played late on in the season I think Exeter got relegated in a game their relegation was confirmed in a game at Brunton Park and he said that afterwards the players came up to sort of to meet with the fans and he said normally the fans would queue up to shake hands with the players, but there were so few Exeter fans that the, that the players had to queue up to shake hands with them, <laughs> which I thought was, I thought was very nice. Um, also, um, Andy mentioned uh, last week about Elgar's uh, football song for Wolves. Was that right? Yes. Was it Elgar? Mm, yes, yeah, it was. Um, um, and uh, funny enough, I was, I was chairing an event with a, um, with a man called Alan Phillips. He's a, a sort of Russian expert. I think he's a Daily Telegraph's Moscow correspondent. And he, was, he told me that Shostakovich... Dmitry Shostakovich was a big football fan, a fan of FC Zenit. Um, and not only that, he that he, he actually wrote match reports for Krasny, the Soviet national daily sports paper. And his byline was, Dis Shostakovich, Stalin prize winner. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he, um, he, wrote various, he wrote various pieces of music about, about football, including a ballet called The Golden Age, 
which uh, deals with a Soviet football team on a tour in a fascist state in Western Europe, came out in 1929. So it must have been Italy, I would guess. Um, but that was banned by Stalin for, for modernism. Uh, always a bit dangerous. Um, and then he wrote some. He did write, write some football-themed music, um, which was commissioned by Lavrenti Beria, the head of the KGB, um, for an event that seems to have been a bit like a sort of KGB concert party, um, a bit like sort of an episode of It Ain't Half Hot, Mum, in which Don Estelle and Windsor Davis are accused of counter-revolutionary tendencies and shot in the back of the head. Um, but anyway, so Shostakovich, and he, he became, and Alan Phillips said that he became a referee as well, he was a fully qualified referee, Dmitry Shostakovich, and he said that he thought that the reason that he did it was to escape the the, the horror and terror of life under Stalin. So you imagine how, how bad it must have been if refereeing a Sunday morning football match was an escape from it. <laughs> and it really brings it home to you how terrible it must have been under Stalin. Uh, finally, Dan, if you can take any more of this rubbish, uh, someone gave me a someone gave me some old copies of Roy of the Rovers comic from the nineteen eighties, nineteen eighty eight. I've long since stopped reading it then. But what was it taken with the Roy's fan pages? Um, there's a thing called Ambition Autograph. This is the section for readers' autographs and their soccer ambitions. Keep the autograph safe. One day the writers could be famous! Exclamation <laughs> mark. So I'm particularly taking um, Simon Cuthbert of Hartill. My ambition is to play in goal for Dundee United and Scotland and also be voted Player of the Year three years in a row. Why well, stop at three, <laughs> Simon? <laughs> and, uh, and meanwhile, Matthew Bauer of Pontsbury. My ambition is to be a left winger for Telford United. Help them to win the GM Vauxhall Conference and then get into the first division by winning promotion from the fourth, third and second in successive seasons. <laughs> Keep the autograph safe. One day the writers could be famous. <laughs> ah, there you are. Anyway, so that's that, that's that for me. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's something that when Saturday comes could look to, to bring back Andy, I think. As a yeah, we, we could call it something like Childhood Dreams Destroyed. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, Telford went, but they went, they went to do liquidation, didn't they? Yes, I think, they're Telford now AFC Telford United. They're, they're, oh, they've got back to, I think they're at the next level below or the National League yeah. now. Or in the, so they've, they've recovered pretty well, but um, they did have a, a bit of a dip. I think Roy's deceiving people as well because he says, keep this, autograph fa- keep this autograph safe, but it's not actually an autograph, is it? It's just printed in a comic. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be worth any money, is it? <laughs> people would sue now. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's enough that they dr- it's enough that they put their dreams out there. Only for time for them shattered later. Only to have them laughed at later on. But you know, anyway. And how about London life in general? And well, uh, starting actually, as we often do, I think, with presidential elections in Latin America. That's what's been mm-hmm. on my mind. There was an election, uh, presidential election, in Paraguay, uh, earlier this week, which was won by the uh, the conservative candidate, as they tend to be in Paraguay. But Jose Luis Chilever, Paraguay national team keeper, was famous for a long time, known for taking his team's free kicks, amongst other things, played in a couple mm. of World Cups. He was running for president. Now, he came fifth with uh, 0.883% of the vote. Maybe it's not a big football vote there, I don't know. But before reading an article about him a few days ahead of the vote, I kind of sensed what his, what his outlook might be. And uh, sure enough, so it's, it starts off by saying, quote, the former goalkeeper is known for his outspoken views and has presented himself as an anti-system candidate. Well, so far, that doesn't mm. sound too bad. Who vows to fight corruption. That sounds 
sounds all right, and opposes globalism. Is and opposes globalism <laughs> and the LGBT community. Oh dear. <laughs> um, it might get on well with Peter Shilton. I don't know. I mean, not that Peter Shilton opposes the LGBT community or, of course, anything like that. But he sense in general that goalkeepers, perhaps in particular among footballers, individualists, you know, perhaps more prone to being on the right politically. I don't know. Neville Southall, of course, uh, an exception well known as a progressive. Are, are there others? I mean, is, is Nigel Martin, who's from Cornwall, a supporter of um, Mebion Kernow, the leftist uh, Cornish nationalist movement. I don't know. Let us know if, if you know. Um, one of our readers, Glyn Barrington, uh, pointed out on Twitter, uh, last weekend Sky ran a final score update on the screen during their Saturday coverage that show, showed that Hartlepool had won 3-1 against Barrow and it said, quote, Hartlepool are four points from safety with one game left. That's, that, that's validation, <laughs> Sky. Unless League Two have bonus points for something else, like the best kept pitch or something, that means they're down. Um, related to that, sad day for Rochdale, 102 years down into non-league football. Um, uh, they, they've been promoted three times in the past, I think we've mentioned before, all from the fourth division to the third, but they have no trophies because they never won the title and haven't even won a playoff final. They all, always went up through coming... Um, third. So if they do come back soon with only two up um, from the National League, it will be a first time. It'll either be a, fir- a title or a playoff win. So um, good luck to them. And hopefully they don't, you know, they don't follow the, the, the thing that happened to a few clubs who dropped through like Stockport and Scunthorpe, who've now dropped down again. Those Stockport have since bounced back. Um, Sheffield Wednesday finished third in League One with, with, with one game still to go. They've set a record number of points for a team that didn't get automatic promotion. Um, no trophies for that, of course. Same, same, of course, true for not counting the National League. Got over hundred points. So, if there's some both now in playoffs, if there was any, if there was any kind of cosmic fairness in the world, um, no disrespect to any of the teams in contention, of course, they would both now get promotion uh, from their leagues. But history suggests maybe one of them might screw it up, which would, you know, kind of seem a bit unfair the way their seasons mm. have gone. Um, news of FIFA. None of this is London news. Instead, I'm just, I'm just saying now. I do, I do live <laughs> in London, but there's no London related stuff. Um, FIFA stage. from London. It's yes, well, it's sort. Of, yeah, I'm announcing it from. I'm I'm in a kitchen in London when I'm uh, when I'm announcing. Um, FIFA staged exams last week for would be agents. So three thousand eight hundred uh, agents from around the world. Um, they have to uh, get seventy five percent in these exams in order to become licensed agents. There are nine hundred or so who are exempt from the exam because they already had licenses. But it's going to be mandatory from October that anybody working on player transfers or contracts, etc has to be licensed. So the pass mark was 75%, but only 52% of them passed. They can do one more retake, the one retake in, in September, September the 20th. So it was 20 multiple choice questions in either French, English, or Spanish. So would it have been stuff like that, those kind of things like John has six bananas and eight apples and eight oranges. If he gives half his fruit to Peter, including at least two of each, What's the minimum number of apples we'll have left? Was it that kind of thing? Anyway, I'd like to get hold of this exam paper if anyone has one. If, if you've done the exam paper and kept a copy, let us know. Even if you failed, you know, we won't judge you. We just want to see what kind of things they were, they were trying to find out. Finally, uh, up-to-date news, Sam Allardyce has been brought back in to do a job at Leeds. Uh, four games left and in the relegation area. Of course, there's lots of obvious jokes which we're not going to lower ourselves to. You know, like he'd take one of Bielsa's buckets and fill it with ice cream or he's, he's got his new backroom <laughs> staff, include a fitness coach and a, and a pizza chef. We're not going to do, we're not going to 
do any of those jokes. Not dismissing it out of hand. I mean, it could work. You know, I mean, he does have a fairly good record, at least, of getting defences organised. He's only got four games left. They've got Spurs on the final day, who I think we can assume won't, won't like it up them. And that's, that's certainly where it will be going. <laughs> Amazing that the agents only had to answer 20 questions. Yeah, multiple choice questions as well. 20 multiple choice. That's really rigid, isn't it? You have to get get 15 out of 20, but with multiple choice, you could probably have a reasonable guess at most of them, I would think. Seems extraordinary. 75%. That's a normal fee, isn't it, I suppose? Oh, yes. There you go. Issue 431 of When Saturday Comes magazine is out now. And joining me to take a look inside its pages is Deputy Editor Fionn Thomas. Fionn, what have we got this time? Yeah, uh, so on this issue we've put Frank Lampard on the cover. Um, But speaking as I am before the weekend's fixtures, um, we're now a bit worried that he might actually get sacked before the end of the season uh, (laughs) while it's still on the shelves. So hopefully uh, Frank can hang on a bit longer for our sake. Uh, maybe grind out a draw or two just to just to get through to the end of the season. That would be ideal. Um, but ma- match of the month in this issue involves a Chelsea team that are a bit more successful this season, um, which is the women. Uh, so Drew Whitworth and uh, photographer Colin McPherson went to see them away at Man City in the uh, WSL. Uh, and it was a big game uh, at the end of March in what continues to be a very exciting title race. Um, the game was played at the, the sort of small academy stadium, 7,000 capacity, uh, next to the Etihad. It was used in the Euros, and um, Drew makes the point of how this season, since that sort of Euro success, a lot of games held at clubs' main stadiums have drawn huge crowds, um, and that, that obviously Man City decided not to do that on this occasion, and that maybe in those cases the setting has helped create the occasion, and maybe it was a bit of a shame that that wasn't the case in this one but um yeah it was still a still a good game by uh by the read of it and uh some great photos from colin as always um we've also got a piece from uh sean cole looking at the uh premier league's crisis culture uh and more specifically as spurs who have been painted as being in a sort of full-blown crisis this year by the, the pundits who uh, sort of have a tendency to automatically reach for hyperbole. But as Sean states, while things could obviously be better than they are for Spurs, um, never finishing below eighth in the Premier League in the last 15 years and reaching four cup finals in that time doesn't really constitute a crisis. Um, uh, I will say this piece did go to press before they conceded five, five goals in 21 <laughs> minutes at Newcastle. Um, but I think Sean's point still stands. Yeah. Um, we've also got a couple of pieces looking at alternative football formats. Um, so firstly, Simon Hart on uh, something called the Kings League in Spain. Uh, it's the brainchild of Gerard Piquet. It's a seven-a-side tournament featuring lots of gimmicks, um, including anonymous masked ex-players, um, MLS-style halfway line penalty shootouts to decide games that are drawn, uh, and also giving coaches the ability to call for a two-minute spell where goals scored by their team count double, which I really like that idea. Um, and the final of this extravaganza was held in front of over 90,000 people at um, Camp Nou in, at the end of March, so it's uh, clearly very popular. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of quite intrigued to actually see some of it now from a uh, 
from the report. Sounds uh, sounds bizarre, but quite entertaining. Um, and then uh, the other half of that feature is uh, another alternative football format is a man versus fact, um, which is a competitive league here in the UK where as well as playing matches, uh, teams are rewarded for weight loss by players throughout the season. Um, and it's approaching its 10th anniversary, should hit 200 clubs across the country this year. Um, some of which have very good names mentioned in the piece, like Rapid Vianetta and <laughs> Unathletico Madrid. Um, so it's both a very successful movement, that, but it also maintains a sort of sense of humour about the whole thing. Uh, and for some of the players that uh, Neil Nixon, the author, met for the piece, it has been completely life-changing. So, yeah, yeah. really, uh, really interesting piece that... Um, well, so we got uh, it's 50 years um, in May since Sunderland's 1973 FA Cup win. Uh, Simon Turnbull has written a piece for us on his recollections from uh, the day at Wembley itself when he was there as an 11-year-old, uh, and then his encounter later in life with uh, the late Ian Porterfield, uh, who scored the winning goal. And uh, Simon talks especially about a very special signed photo he uh, has kept of the day and has up on his wall still. Um, we've also got a piece on Millwall. Uh, who are my local team. And I've definitely noticed the uh, proliferation of stickers from overseas clubs and fans on uh, on lampposts around here. So it's nice to have had all of that explained uh, by Matthew Nash in his piece about how more and more tourists are choosing Millwall over Premier League matches uh, when, when visiting London to watch football. Uh, and the club are, to their credit, responding and, and welcoming them, uh, including a new international membership scheme. So, yeah... Uh, Millwall drawing the crowds so could of course be in the Premier League next season um, team spirit feature this month is on Blackpool um, just relegated from the championship and we've got a piece on uh, that disappointing season by Chris Walker lamenting on some sort of poor decisions around managerial changes and the, their sort of their budget has reflected their league position uh, and their uncertain future in a season where he says just about everything that could have gone wrong has done uh, but the other half of the feature reflects on happier times at Blackpool in 1975 when the uh, Bloomfield Road groundsman Harry Cummings, who's a relative of the writer of this piece, David Hewitt, um, was given a testimonial uh, uh, as a tribute to his dedication to the pitch, uh, featuring 15 international players in a crowd of 3,000. So that's a very nice nostalgic piece uh, about that day, which which sounded uh, sounded like quite a do. Um, and we've also got another blast from the past with Mike Wally on a Granada Goals Extra TV program, or more specifically, its very first episode in 1991, which was uh, broadcast immediately after games on a Saturday afternoon with a very fast turnaround, um, which brought problems. Uh, and certainly on that first episode, which went so disastrously, the uh, tapes have been locked away ever since. Um, I won't go into the details of what went wrong because they're all in Mike's piece, but you have to hope maybe one day when everyone involved has fully got over the embarrassment, they might uh, the tape might re-emerge for everyone to enjoy. Uh, but in the meantime, we just have to imagine. Uh, it's also the third instalment of our new feature, Perfect Shot, where we focus on a particular photograph. And this one is an amazing photo of Stamford Bridge hosting the 1920 yeah, FA yeah. Cup final, um, which is uh, taken by one of the great pioneers in panoramic photography, mm. uh, Alfred Hind Robinson. Yeah, great panorama of uh, Stamford Bridge with the game going on. I particularly like um, the advert boards that are visible in the photos. You've got, you got your stock answers, as I'll call them, of Bovril and Oxide. But there's also one, something called the... Um, Military pickle. And I looked. I looked up what this was, and it's a, a stimulating, appetising digestive. Oh. Um, so I think we need to get some of that for Harry yeah. at the yeah, top I of the agree. next podcast. <laughs> 
Other than that, loads of other stuff. Story of playing for Luxembourg in the Faroe Islands, uh, the resurgence of Circle Bruges. Shot photo feature comes from Anik Town. ACL injuries in women's football, non-league fixture backlogs at the end of the season, climate concerns, East Stirlingshire in the Lowland League, Premier League's ban on gambling shirt sponsors, season and briefers from Argentina. We've got Harry on experimental football shirt fabrics. Uh, we've got the usual book reviews. And of course, lots of Gary Lineker discourse in the letters page. Mm. And finally from me... Um, date for your diaries uh, if you're in the London area we're going to be at the London Football Book Market run by our friends at Stanchion Books on Saturday May 27th 11 to 6 at the South London Gallery in Peckham uh, there's a long list of other independent football magazines and publishers that will be there as well plus author talks book signings photo exhibitions and it's all free entry so come and say hello at our WSC stall uh, there's more details and you can sign up in advance on the South London Gallery's website Brilliant stuff. Yes, issue 431 is out now in all the usual places and contains a letter featuring legendary York City club secretary Keith Usher. And what more could anyone want in a magazine? Get yours. Hats and scarves and pin badges. Program! 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 Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and T-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk. Jackpot ticket, pound a go. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Oakland Stompers, Tony Towers, the secret love lives of head groundsmen, and it's landed on dramatic last days and season ends. Oh, how apt for this time of year. How yeah. amazing it is sometimes, this machine, isn't it? <laughs> Blimey. Andy, what the chuffing Nora does that bring to mind? Well, not for the first time this week. I think I'd like to go back to a, a simple, a simpler, happier time. Um, uh, the, when the Basque teams won the Spanish League for four years in a row, from 80-81 to 83-84. Real Sociedad for the first two years, their, their first and only titles, and then Bilbao for the next two. And three of these were resolved on the final day at the expense of Real Madrid, and you love to see it. 80-81, Sociedad, <laughs> who had just missed the title the previous season, needed a draw. Um, uh, uh, they're away to Gijon in the last match but they're losing 2-1 there's a game that's famous for being played in a torrential downpour there's, there's some footage of it on YouTube and they equalised in the last seconds at, according to the legend 12 seconds from the end and this put them level on points to Real Madrid but the head-to-head record was what counted rather than goal difference and they, they were 3-2 uh, they won, they'd sort of won 3-2 uh, on aggregate over, over the two matches so they won the league Um the then there's also a Bilbao's first uh, title in that run. Um, they were a point behind Real Madrid going into the last game, and Real had completed a double over Bilbao, um, th- completed it three matches before the end of the season, so they looked like they were going to nick it. And they were away to Valencia, but Valencia had to win to stay up. Real only needed to draw because they'd won the head-to-head. Um, so um, Bilbao were away at Las Palmas. They won 5-1 at Las Palmas. Las, Las Palmas possibly already got the flip-flops on, which is probably fair enough to say in Las Palmas, I think. It's a holiday place. But Real lost 1-0 to Valencia, a goal scored by Miguel Tendir, who went on to, to win um, several titles with Real. And they missed the title by a point. And finally, the next year, Bilbao and Real uh, were level on points on the final day and Bilbao had won the head-to-head and they beat Real Sociedad on the final day. They scored a winner in the 79th minute. Though you'd assume Sociedad would be trying hard not to lose that game. Is the local rivals? I don't know, though, because they, they were 
doing down Real Madrid. Real had gone behind Espanyol, but then got two penalties in the second half to go 2-1 up. But Bilbao had won the home game late on, so unlucky meringues. You got a feel for. Um, <laughs> should mention Hearts really. Uh, I think in terms of the tragic stories, although not, of course, if you're a Hibs fan or indeed a Kilmarnock or Celtic fan, in terms of teams blowing the title, to have had two final day collapses since their last league title in 1959-60. They've been runners up several times overall, but they haven't won it since then. And 85-86, they um, and and in in 64-65, 64-65, they were at home. To Kilmarnock, they only needed to draw. Kilmarnock needed to win by at least two because the title was decided on goal average, and which Kilmarnock did two 0 A bit like the Liverpool Arsenal game in eighty nine, um, where they needed a specific uh, score to to win by. And then in eighty five eighty six, Hearts had had a twenty seven game unbeaten run. They'd lost five of the first eight games, but no more after that. They were two points ahead of Celtic in the days of two points for a win, but they had a goal difference that was four better. They're away to Dundee in the last match, and they lost 2-0. Albert Kidd, who's a, a, a sort of a veteran striker who hadn't scored in his previous appearances that season for Dundee, he got both goals very late on. And Dundee still had a chance of qualifying for the UEFA Cup, so they still had something to play for, but they didn't, they didn't make it in the end. Celtic, meanwhile, had won 5-0 away at St Mirren, flip-flops in Paisley, possibly, not unheard of, <laughs> and uh, they won the league on goal difference. So Hearts... It's fair to say, uh, uh, we're, we're then, fair to assume we're then a bit deflated. Lost the cup final to Aberdeen 3-0 the following week. So, blowing the, blowing the title on the final day of the season twice. I mean, uh, uh, or sort of 30, uh, what is it, 20 years apart. And uh, they haven't really got close uh, since either, unfortunately. Um should also mention Sheffield United missing a last-minute penalty to avoid a first-ever relegation to Division 4 in 8081. The, the Player missed a penalty. Don Gibbons, quite well known, ex-Island international, who left uh, Sheffield United and went have a, uh, had a long career in Switzerland. After that, maybe felt it's far enough away from Sheffield. That was United's only their second ever season in the third division as well. They bounced back fairly quickly. But um, in terms of, I think, in terms of UK, I can't think of another instance of a team missing a, a decisive penalty in the final minute like that. That might be the the only one that I've noticed. Or should also say. Um, again, we, we have alluded mentioned before Blackpool's relegation from Division Two in seventy seven seventy eight. They were never in the relegation places until the final league table. They're in the top half of the table until April. Then they lost four of the last five games. They played the last match on a Saturday, after which they were sixteenth. So the four teams below them had games in hand, which were played over the next few days, and all all the results went against. All the four results had to go against them. And um, all, all of them did. And Blackpool had never been lower than Division Two before in the history. And it took them 30 years to get back. It was such a traumatic thing. Graham Kelly, who was secretary of the Football League at the time, was a Blackpool fan. Uh, later established the rule that all clubs' final matches in the season should all be played at the, at the same time. And I think he expressed regret that he should have brought it in earlier. It might have, it might have saved Blackpool. And it's bizarre. In retrospect, it took so long. It seems like a fairly obvious thing to try and sort out. That it took so long for such a, a nearly what, 90 years after the league started for such a rule to be brought in. Mm, great stuff. And Harry? Um, well, I suppose we, we would think instantly of the words, Jimmy Glass, get up there, you might as well for heaven's sake. But we're, <laughs> we're all familiar with that story, so we won't go there. Also, we've spoken in the past, we're bringing Torquay on, uh, making a second appearance on the podcast. Um, uh, the 1986-87 season and the 
fateful intervention of the police dog named Bryn, which bit Jimmy Nickel. We've done, we've covered that as well in the past, I think. Um, another mention I should make a mention, I think, of uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, uh, Bundesliga 1977-78. They were level on points with Cologne, uh, forty-two points each. Um, but but Borussia Mönchengladbach were ten goals uh, to, to the bad in the goal difference. In their final game of the season, uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, nicknamed the Foles, uh, they played Dortmund, and they absolutely hammered them. Mupank has scored five goals alone, and the game finished 12-0. I think the biggest win in Bundesliga history still, probably. Um, unfortunately for them, so that did overturn the goal difference, but unfortunately, except that Cologne were playing San Pauli and won 5-0. Um, so it didn't work out. So even though they scored 12, 1-12-0 in the last game of the season, they still didn't win the title. Um, but what I'll go for is uh, the Bundesliga 1999. We have spoken about this again in the past uh, in connection with Jörg Berger, the Red Adair of German football. But on the final day of that of that season, um, Bochum, Borussia Mönchengladbach were already relegated. Uh, Frankfurt had 34 points. Hansa Rostock 35, Freiburg 36, Stuttgart 36, and Nuremberg 37. So there were five teams that could go down. Uh, Nuremberg were playing Freiburg, Stuttgart against Bremen, Frankfurt versus Kaiserslautern, and they already relegated Bochum were playing Rostock. Um, after six minutes, Stuttgart took the lead. In the 28th minute, Freiburg went one up at Nuremberg. In the 35th, Freiburg doubled their lead. In the 37th, Rostock took the lead at Bochum. Are you following all this, Dan? Oh, yes. So Nuremberg had now slipped down the table and only Frankfurt below them. At half-time, Frankfurt a nil-nil at Kaiserschlauten. Two-goal disadvantage they've got. So Nuremberg 37 points, Frankfurt 36. And in the 47th minute, Frankfurt go one up. The 68th minute, Kaiserschlauten equalise. It's, it's going up and down, Dan. 70th minute, Frankfurt get a second. 71st, Bochum um, equalise against Rostock. The 74th, Bochum take the lead. Oh. In the 77th, Rostock equalise. In the 80th, Frankfurt get a third. In the 82nd, Frankfurt get a fourth. Now they're equal on points and goal difference. I've got to go into an extra sheet of paper now, Dan. In the 82nd minute, Rostock go three up against Bochum. So now Nuremberg are in the third relegation spot. But in the 85th minute, Nuremberg score 1-2 against Freiburg. So now goal difference, they've jumped out of the relegation zone. But then in the 89th minute, Frankfurt get a fifth goal. Nuremberg fall into the relegation zone. In the 90th minute, they have a shot from outside the penalty area. It hits the post, but bounces out. There are no more goals. Oh. Nuremberg go down, having been in the relegation zone for just four minutes during the entire season. Oh. There you go. I need to lie down with a flannel over my oh. head now. You and me both. I was I was visualizing a match of the day style split. Imagine if you were the, the fans with the when the old days in those days, you know, with a, a yeah, radio, with, radio with a little yeah. earpiece, and someone be shouting out, wouldn't they? Someone be yeah. shouting out the scores. God, talk about a Nuremberg trial. Somebody will have said that. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> It's time for the part of the podcast where one of us chooses a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Harry, what's your choice this time? 
Well, I'll return to one of my favourite stamping grounds of West Flanders. Uh, a record from 1973, Hey Zit Aaron by Johnny Bergs, which is celebrating KSK Roy Solara for reasons nobody seems to know. Um, the title, uh, Hey Zit Aaron, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, seems to, from, what I've, from Google Translate in Dutch, it means he's in it. Which doesn't make much sense, but maybe there's a contextual <laughs> meaning that, uh, that uh, Dutch, any Dutch podcast listeners, we know there are some, uh, might be able to t- might be able to tell me about. It. As I say, I'm not sure why anyone was making a record about Ross Solara's football team. It's a small town in in West Flanders, about sixty five thousand people, um, and K, the, the local football team played most of their lives in the third and second division. I think their top position, they finished runners up about three times. Um, so in, in in the second division. Um, and then they went bust in 2020. Um, they got their ground, the Stadio Skiervelde, is now occupied by the non-league VK Dadizela. So it's not, it sounds like I don't know. It sounds a bit like a, a bit like a Bay City Rollers lyric, doesn't it? Skiervelde Dadizela. Anyway, so I don't know anything about this. I don't know who Johnny Bergs was, what the title means, or why they made the record. But here it is anyway. <laughs> you are the new John Peel. <laughs> Patrick Wellang heeft ieder verbaasd En Deelster die schiet er niet naast En zit erin, het is Roeselare Hip hip hoera, bravo is daar En zit erin, het is Roeselare Hip hip hoera, bravo is daar Voor ons stelt één enkele ploeg Het is Eska Roeselare Fernand Bone, die treint zich heel goed, terwijl Jules Ostin alles doet. Er zit erin, het is Roeselaar. And now it's time for our Giddy feature, the final third, in which we ask someone to help us build a football museum by donating a match, a player and an object. This time I am joined by the Times newspaper's Scottish football correspondent and author of the great book, Fergie Rises, Michael Grant. Michael, how are you? I'm excellent, Daniel. The sun Good. is shining in Scotland, as always. It so, is, isn't yeah. it? And the last yeah. time I saw you, we were in... Well, it's a bit of a glamorous life working for the Times, isn't it? We were in the Bonnie Rig Rose Social Club, weren't we? We were, yeah. We had gone to watch Bonnie Rig Rose against Dumbarton with one of our... Uh, unfortunate friends who supports Dumbarton <laughs> and uh, we, you and I were there as neutrals making sarcastic and cynical comments throughout but uh, I think we all enjoyed it didn't we? Uh, we certainly it, did. We certainly Scottish, did. Football, Scottish football in the raw. Yes and uh, I found myself quite obsessed with the port- porter cabin toilets I think. Porterloos mm. rather they were. I was, yeah, I was worrying, watching... worryingly so. <laughs> I was watching the popularity of them, and the, the, the yeah, it was good. It was like a side game for me. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and I think that that took you up to close to all of the current uh, SPFL grounds, didn't it? How many have you done now? Yeah, I, I, you mentioned this to me the other day, and I looked it up, and I'm at forty-one out of forty-two, oh. so I'm almost there. And the club that I have still to go and see is. Both Rangers under Balmoral Stadium. Um, mm. Now, I, I used to work in Aberdeen and I went to Cove Rangers for, for, for the, hardly anybody will, won't know this, of course, but Cove Rangers play out of Aberdeen. And uh, when I lived in Aberdeen, I would quite often go to their previous ground, which is called Allen Park, uh, which they moved out of about five years ago. And Allen Park is the coldest football ground that I've been to in Britain. 
Um, I'll, I'll give an honourable mention to our Gayfield at our broth here, but Alan Park uh, was, was the coldest. But that and the Torpedo Stadium in Moscow <clears throat> are the two coldest grounds I've ever been to. Um, but uh, they've left that. The new Balmoral Stadium, which I imagine is far, far warmer um, somehow, uh, is the only ground that I have still to go to. The, the problem we have, Dan, is the pyramid uh, mm. keeps allowing... Um, or weaker rubbishy clubs to fall away and new ambitious clubs with new grounds, which I haven't been to yet, to come in. So at one point I did have 42 out of 42, but um, I, I, I've, I've slipped back a little bit. Um, and now uh, we're in the middle of playoffs and we have Spartans, whose yeah. ground I have not been to for a match. Um, I've been to it, but not for a match, against Albion Rovers. Now, the good people of Spartans, you know, the excellent volunteers and staff and the players and management uh, desperately want to get promoted. And I selfishly think, no, stay down so I don't have to worry about coming to your ground. I've been to Albion Rovers. It keeps me at 41 out of 42. Let's just be settled and, you know, happy with that. Yeah, the democracy of the pyramids ruined that, hasn't it? When it was permanently East Sterling, you were fine with that before, weren't you? Yeah. You you know, you think you've done it. You've you've completed all the grounds, and then about a year or two later, oh, here we go, I've got to trips through them again. (laughs) And you don't have any oddball rules like some groundhoppers, not that you're a groundhopper, you're there for work, but uh, have to have things like they have to see a goal or they have to touch the nets. I'm just making that last one up, but it's possible, isn't it? You just have to be there for a game. Yeah, just there for a game. Yeah, um, no, no, I wouldn't care no nils or anything like that. Um, as long as I've been, no, I mean, to be honest, Dan, a lot of the games were as a fan uh, when I was younger. Uh, I did decide that I wanted to try and you know get round as many of the grounds as I could. I'm, I'm an Aberdeen supporter, so I went to a lot of the picked off all the kind of main grounds with Aberdeen. But occasionally, if there was um, if there was a free Saturday, I would go all over the place really to you know Forfar and Matros. Uh, Albion Rovers, Meadowbank, all these kind of places. Um, and I was really satisfying, pleased that I did it. And I know it's a tragic kind of thing to admit to, but you know, then work gets in the way, and you, and it's difficult to find time to do that kind of thing. I mean, that weekend we had at Bonnie Rig Rose, although we're having a laugh, it was good fun. Mm. You know, I enjoyed it a lot, and uh, it was nice to be able to uh, to tick off Bonnie Rig. They've only just come into the league a couple of years ago. Same with Kelty Hearts, you know. So you are seeing. Um, new grounds and new little communities, and, and 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 you know, genuinely good luck to all of them. Some of them are are bringing something new to the to the Scottish league. Mm. And that day, you got to see my childlike excitement when when a ball goes out of the ground. Cock a hoop, mm. I was. You were cock a hoop, yeah. <laughs> Again, surprisingly, so between that and the toilets, you know, you've <laughs> you've got weird weird peccadillos. I mean, I, I we've known each other for quite some time, so <laughs> I ought to be familiar with this. But you know, you can still surprise me. <laughs> and what about you? What about your your Don's life? Then, when did you start going? And I seem to recall that you had quite the the travel just to get to home games, didn't you? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, we we grew up in the West Highlands and uh, the West Coast, and um, my mother and father were from Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire. My dad had been a regular at Pataudry for at least a couple of decades uh, every game and then he his job took him out to the West Highlands uh, just as I was kind of arriving on the scene and growing up so it was difficult um, and those I mean you know I wouldn't say public transport's particularly great between the West Highlands and mm-hmm. northeast of Scotland now but certainly back then the roads were poorer it was just harder to do it um 
all of that said, I, I started to get to go through one way or another in about 82. And oh. um, if you have even a passing knowledge of the history of Aberdeen <laughs> Football Club, you might be aware that 1982 and, and you know, or, or 80 onwards was a rather exciting time um, under a manager who uh, had eight and a bit brilliant years at Aberdeen and then drifted away into obscurity, Alex Ferguson. <laughs> Um, so yeah, an exciting time, and but I, 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 I was no glory hunter because I started supporting them, uh, just into the mid seventies, where I think they had won one trophy in sixteen or seventeen years, a Scottish Cup, when I was one and a half years old. So I wasn't, I wasn't latching on to um, a great hall of trophies at that time, you know. So I, I was lucky, I was blessed because really it all just kind of unfolded and and exploded when I was uh, old enough to kind of take it in. And what about Pitodri? Because it is even now, obviously redeveloped from when you first started going. But it is a magic ground by the sea. Incredible situation, I think, is the right word. Is it? Is yeah. a move? Is a move still looking? A move away looking likely still? Well, the, the club wants to move away. The, the The big problem is funding. Um, they are at loggerheads with the with the local council at the moment about whether the council will put some money in. Uh, or significant money in to um, a new stadium. They have, they've dotted around the city in terms of finding locations for a new ground. None of them very satisfying, really. Uh, the most recent serious plan was that they would have one on the edge of town, which you know I, I, I imagine a lot of listeners would just kind of groan <laughs> at the very suggestion of that because um, it can be pretty soul destroying, traipsing miles out of a city centre to, to find a new ground. Mm. Uh, it, it is where they've built a fantastic new training centre and long overdue, and that's been a massive addition and benefit to the club. But um, I was never in favour of the stadium being there. That now looks less likely. There is talk of them building it close to Pataudry, which I think most fans would would prefer and want if, if we can't stay at the ground. Mm. Um, personally, I think that the, the, the planning issues is, are, are going to drag this project uh, into the kind of uh, long grass and and to be honest Dan I'll be all right with that because if, yeah. if it means staying at Pataudry you know I, I, that that's fine for me uh, the ground's a bit unloved a bit neglected but um, it's still something pretty special to be honest yeah so still time for those listening to know a lot of people especially in England like to make a, pil- a Scottish pilgrimage each year and they're highly highly recommended I was really taken by the abandoned bar outside Pataudry just next to the beach there and mm. dream it looked like quite the place in its day. I can't remember what it was called, like an all-round entertainment yeah. kind of venue, yeah. sunshine indoors kind of place. It's, it, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's not like us in, in Scotland to neglect a bar to the extent it has to close <laughs> down, you know. Uh, but actually, sadly to say, that has now been demolished. So oh. the last time, or, or a, a couple of times ago when I was up, the Broadhill Bar it was called, um, and uh, it was literally a pile of rubble. Um, oh. which I'm, I'm guessing has been cleared away now. So, yeah, sad, sadly, no more. Um, shattering but... shattering my dreams. My <laughs> <laughs> That was going to be my Kevin MacLeod-style uh, project that I was going to bring that back. <laughs> and, <laughs> all, all glassy and nice. Well, we haven't just got you here for uh, travel tourism recommendations. We have got you here as our latest guest curator of the When Saturday Comes Football Museum. So, first of all, Michael, I'd like you to nominate for us a match. Well, you know, I, I thought about this for a little time, uh, Daniel, and my, you know, one of the thoughts I had was the nineteen 
sorry, sorry, the 2016 Scottish Cup final between Hibs and Rangers. Um, there was so much going on in that match. I'll, I'll keep it brief because it's because it's not my selection. But <laughs> those those two teams didn't didn't like each other, especially at that site that time. Hibs went one 0 up. Rangers came back two one up. Hibs won it three two. Goal a couple of minutes from time. It was tribal at Hamden that day. It was just an absolute bear pit, 50-50 split. Brilliant. And the most powerful thing was that Hibs had, hadn't won the Cup for 114 years. I mean, I, I've never seen emotion like it, mm-hmm. genuinely. And I, and you think you cannot manufacture that. It, 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 you know, that, uh, that's authentic and that's real. But, mm. but that's Hibs and I'm here to talk about Aberdeen. Um, so, predictably, I'm going to go with Aberdeen, who Real Madrid won. 11th of May 1983 in the Ulevi Stadium in Gothenburg, the European Cup Winners' Cup final. Um, uh, just an, an, an epic, epic result for my, my club and for Scottish football, to be honest. It was uh, it's still the last time that a Scottish team has won a European trophy. Uh, it was, um, you know, Alex Ferguson's first real, you know, the, the first flair that he set up into into football, really, to say, look, look, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be something special. We'd beaten Bayern Munich in the quarterfinal, you know. I mean, that that was um, spectacular enough over mm. two games, but to to then go in against Real Madrid uh, and to beat them, it was lashing rain in the Ulevi Stadium. Seventeen thousand fans were there. Fourteen thousand of them were Aberdeen fans. Just three thousand from Real. It, it, it's just a, it's just the pivotal match in in Aberdeen's history. It's um impossible to surpass and, and you know I, I feel coming on to the show that maybe a lot of people are familiar with it but I still think that I need to be a kind of ambassador and, and, and a bit of an evangelist for Aberdeen and say that it, it has to be Gothenburg I think it's a, a hugely significant result it, it, it ties in with the likes of Forest and Ipswich and Villa uh, you know who, who won European trophies in that era and and aren't going to do it again anytime soon same goes for Aberdeen and finally it's forty years ago this week, so mm. I, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't really go with any other match, uh, Dan. In all good conscience, I, you know, it has to be Gothenburg for me. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, a fine, a fine addition. I, I love some of the footage of people getting uh, the the boats across to to that match. I think we'll have a, for, in the museum. We'll have some sort of model model boat, model ferry type thing to represent that with some lashing well, the, rain as well. The, 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 yeah, there was 500 people and there was a, the famous ferry that went across was called the St. Clair from Aberdeen to Gothenburg and there was 500 passengers and they consumed 14,000 cans of beer. So, I mean, you know, if, if anybody was teetotal on that, it just makes the ratio even more impressive, frankly. <laughs> they could have built a, a raft out of all those empty cans to get back as well, couldn't they? <laughs> if they were true Boy Scouts. Exactly, yeah, totally. <laughs> right, excellent stuff, yeah, a worthy addition. Right, let's have from you a player. Well, look, I mean, I'm, I'm beyond predictable here because I'm, I'm going to go with the captain who, who uh, lifted the cup, the great, the outstanding Willie Miller. Um Scotland centre half, uh, Scotland captain occasionally, our captain. Uh, he, he was a strange guy, Willie. I mean, he was a, a Glaswegian guy who looked Mediterranean. I mean, he you know he looked like he could have played in the Italian cent- yeah. central defence. And, and and I don't just mean that in terms of how good he was. Um, you know, he had the the kind of dark uh, complexion and the moustache and all. That. He looked uh, he looked hard, but no, he was the real deal. And 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 it's interesting because um, I do think that sometimes. 
people out with Scotland or who didn't see Willie Miller week in, week out tend to underrate him and tend to be puzzled that Alan Hansen was only capped 26 times over his career. You know, I'm more puzzled that Alan Hansen got 26 caps <laughs> because, you know, many of them must have been at the expense of Miller. Miller got 65. Now, it, it, it doesn't matter whether I think Willie Miller was better than Alan Hansen. The, the, the point is that Alec Ferguson did, and also Jock Steen tended to. Um, and Fergie, uh, I, I saw, I came across a, a, an excellent feature in the Sunday Times did years ago when when Fergie put together his his, his greatest um, Scotland team, and uh, and him and him and Hugh McIlvanny were kind of debating in print the various uh, the various options, and when it came to the centre half. Fergie said of Miller that he was the greatest penalty box defender I've ever known. Now you know that that that's a hell of an endorsement coming yeah. from coming from Ferguson. You know he had he had the timing, he had anticipation, he was fearless, uh, he was a leader. He would confront opponents and referees. He was and he was also so cool. He had, he had, he had his own way of holding a trophy. Now you know that that makes you pretty special. I think he yeah. he would raise a cup. By holding the stem in his right hand, you know, two arms are, uh, are aloft, but he would hold it uh, in his right hand. And I think, well, you know, if, if you've got your own distinct way of holding <laughs> up a trophy, <laughs> you're pretty iconic in my book. Oh, that's incredible. And on top of all of that, one of his autobiographies is, is of course, called A Miller's Tale, which just had to be, didn't it? And so we'll, <laughs> we'll we'll have a copy of that held in a, in a good way in the museum, I think. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> Willie Miller in the museum. So let's have for the When Saturday Comes Football Museum from you, Michael, an object. Yeah, well, I, I felt... Um... I felt that I might uh, let you down here because I assumed this might be in already, but you you confirmed to me that it, it isn't. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm going with a book and a, an iconic book, which I'm sure will be famous to or familiar to a lot of the listeners, which is um, the Football Grounds of Great Britain by Simon Ingalls, yes. uh, which came out uh, I see 36 years ago. Um, it's just a classic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people weren't writing football or about football like this at that time. Ingalls is a uh, and also an, 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 a kind of archi- architectural historian. Um, I, I think actually that he had done a book on the on the grounds of England and Wales, but the, the version I'm talking about really was the '87 version, which mm. included the Scottish teams. Now, oh, I honestly I spent hours going over this book time and time again. I just <laughs> loved it, loved the pictures. I loved the 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 depth and the expertise of the research was just. It's still staggering. I mean, it's so detailed, and there's so much colour. And when, and you know, you'll have done this, I'm sure, when you looked at the, you know, the the borough section. Um, you know, you're, you're expecting a little kind of slip or something that you yeah, think, well, that yeah. isn't right. But but he's not like that. I mean, it's so comprehensive and yeah. and impressive. You know, and also, uh, it, it, he seemed to be quite fond of photography for some. Uh, for some reason at that time, Pataudry was one of, there was only five books, five grounds actually on the cover in, in colour and Pataudry was one of them, it was the only Scottish ground that was there. He talks about the breathtaking sweep of the South Stand and the beach end being cavernous and he, and he finishes his, his chapter on Aberdeen by saying it's one of the finest grounds in Britain, a gem amidst, amidst the granite. No, you know, so that all of that was, was fabulous but the, the book in itself as a whole is fabulous and um, you know, I, I, I think if there's going to be a, a When Saturday Comes uh, museum, this has to be in it. Yeah. Uh, it has, has to go in, Dan. 
it's it's a bible isn't it and and beautifully written as that's the other thing with this this topic can be quite geeky and dry but each one yeah. of them is really nice yeah it's so readable and uh... <laughs> yeah there's real i think there's real warmth and and, yeah. and kind of optimism I mean, you know because he he writes about some of the really small scottish grounds and you're almost thinking well you know how much can there be to say about them yeah. but he writes with real optimism about that club's future and real kind of nostalgia and, and, and warmth. It's, uh, yeah, I just think it's lovely. Great. A good man and, and uh, did a brilliant live podcast with us, Simon, as well at one point. Right, superb. That's so much thinking. People are going to be hungry. They're going to need refreshments. Is there anything you'd like us to sell in the When Saturday Comes Football Museum Cafe? Yeah, there is. And first of all, I need to explain what it is because <laughs> I think very, very few people are going to be familiar with this. But I'm going to submit for your uh, consideration something called Rowies. Oh, yes. Now, Rowies, you, it sounds you sounds like you've had a Rowie, but um, I, how to describe it? It, it kind of looks like a kind of large pancake mm. or or a discus, and some people some people would say it's got the texture of a discus as well. <laughs> um, uh, but it's a kind of roll-broke, squashed kind of croissant thing, Um I had to look this up, and it's made out of pastry and butter and lard. Oh, yes. And w- with a high fat content, a flaky texture, and a kind of sometimes a kind of salty taste. It was made for fishermen because they needed stuff to be able to take out onto the boats and when I mean, they were away for days or even weeks, and this stuff wouldn't go, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't go bad. Um, and I don't know if I've really sold it with this description so far, but it's great. <laughs> It's absolutely great. It's tasty. You have it with butter or jam. You can have it hot or cold. And um, th- I mean, the problem with it is the high fat content. I mean, you know, it's not entirely surprising that Scotland has the lowest life expectancy uh, in the United Kingdom, I, I would imagine. And I, I'm not saying that Rowies contribute to this, <laughs> but nor would I be surprised. Um, and in terms of the football connection, pretty tenuous, but uh, the Aberdeen current Aberdeen chairman Dave Cormack said in an interview a couple of years ago, "I love Rowies," and uh, fans took this as like a rallying call. You know, they've um, they they they, were, they made uh, gifts out of it, and there was there's I mean, it's even in song. You know, they put in, put it into raps and all this stuff. It's uh, but uh, I must say, Dave said that he liked uh, his Rowies with sliced bacon in between, and. Um, I'm sorry to say, although maybe not entirely surprised to say that Dave recently had uh, major heart surgery, which again, (laughs) yeah, you do wonder if it's related. Now, I saw him the other day and he looked extremely healthy, but I I, I do fear that Dave's rowy days might be behind him or or, or certainly ought to be. But uh, that's that's my recommendation because um, they're they're far tastier than I will have made them sound, but um, don't don't have too many. You have been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.